Luke chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading at verse 18 down to verse 27. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all. That you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter The kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Amen. I want to divide our text this morning into three parts. First of all, verses 18 to 20. We're going to ask the question, what do you need for heaven? What do you need for heaven? Verses 18 to 20. Secondly, in our text, verses 21 to 23, we will see the total commitment to Christ. The total commitment to Christ. And then thirdly, verse 24 to 27, the impossible work of grace. The impossible work of grace. What do you need for heaven? Total commitment to Christ. The impossible work of grace. Now, our text today begins with a wealthy official, some kind of leader, some kind of community leader, maybe civic leader. He is what we would call today the one percent. He is, in our terms today, a millionaire. He is a man of great wealth, we are told in verse 23. He is a a man who... Probably in his own day, went to the equivalent of Harvard or Yale, some prestigious school. He came from a family that had great wealth and he was trained so that he one day would be a leader in his community. And this person comes to Jesus and he asks a question, boys and girls, that's an important question that all of us probably need to ask ourselves. And that is, what do I need for eternal life? What do I need to go to heaven. Now, this is a good question. We don't want to fault this man for asking this question. All of us need to consider this very seriously ourselves. What do we need for eternal life? What's required of us if we're going to see God, if we're going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ one day, and if we're going to be on the right hand of Jesus rather than on the left hand of Jesus, if we're going to be with the sheep rather than with the goats, what do I need? What do I need to do? So Jesus here gives us 
A twofold answer that I want us to consider here as we ponder for ourselves. What do we need for heaven? And the twofold answer goes like this. Number one, Jesus said, he asked him a question. Why do you call me good? Kind of interesting that Jesus would respond to a question with a question of his own. Why call me good? And then secondly, he said, you know, the law, you know, the law. Now, uh, I would suspect that if you were to take all of us who are ministers here in Troop County and you were to maybe have a hidden camera and you had this hidden camera on a person on a sidewalk and you strategically went and found out all the ministers in Troop County and you had that person with the hidden camera and microphone go up to the minister on the sidewalk And have that person ask the minister, what must you do to have eternal life? They probably wouldn't give an answer quite like Jesus gives here. And I want to suggest to you that we ought to think about why Jesus answers the way he does. And what that says about the way we as a church need to be presenting the gospel when people are inquiring of us. What do they need for eternal life? Now, let's consider the twofold answer of Jesus here. Jesus here answers the question by asking a question, first of all. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Only God, Jesus says, is good. Now, why do you think Jesus asks that question of this rich young ruler? Well, he's probably trying to get the rich young ruler to think about what he is actually saying. Why does he call him good? Put it this way. There are a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, who call Jesus good. But we don't all call him good for the same reason. And I think the reason Jesus here goes back with this question, why do you call me good? is because he is challenging the rich young ruler as to who Jesus is himself. That is, what is the rich young ruler's view of Jesus Christ? You know, even your most liberal churches want to call Jesus good. They don't want to give up that position. But it doesn't mean that they believe Jesus is the son of God, very God of very God, equal with the father in power and wisdom, in might. No, they want to say he's a good teacher or he has good ethics. Um, He gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of like Gandhi. He's kind of like Martin Luther King Jr. He's kind of like one of these kind of inspirational figures. That's how they often view Jesus. The trouble with that, boys and girls, is that Jesus claimed to be much more than just an inspirational figure. Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. When Jesus received worship from people who 
called him the son of David and gave him the messianic titles. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ showed himself to be more than just a good teacher or just an inspirational figure or somebody who gives us some kind of nice ethical system here. Jesus is the son of God. He is very God of very God come in the flesh. He is the eternal son of God who has come into the world to save us from our sins. This is why we call him good. Because he is fully good. His divine nature can be nothing but good. His, his divine nature being united with a human nature like ours sanctified the human nature so that Jesus in his human nature is without any sin. He's holy. The Bible says that he is blameless. He's spotless. Undefiled. Separated from sinners. He is not inclined towards any evil within himself. Unlike you and me, we are inclined to all manner of evil. But Jesus was never inclined towards evil. Though tempted at every point, yet without sin. But Jesus was never from within inclined towards any wickedness at all. Never sinned. Never told a lie. Never stole. Never spoke back to mom and dad. Always honored his parents in everything he said and did. Was perfect in his life from the time he was conceived to the time on the cross when he said it is finished and he gave up his spirit. Jesus Christ is the holy lamb of God. He is good because he is God and he is the second Adam. He is the perfect second man. Given unto men that we might be saved from our sins. This is why we call him good. But Jesus says to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good since only God is good? And the rich young ruler should have said, because you are God's son, because you are God incarnate, because you were conceived by the spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But the rich young ruler does not know that he does not understand that. And so. He has a false view of who Jesus is, and that's why Jesus begins there. Why do you call me good? Um, you need to know this because, um, you know, if you have Muslim friends, they'll, they'll use this verse of Jesus to try and deny that Jesus is God's son, who is God of God. They'll say there's none good but God. Jesus himself said that. I, I had a Muslim say that to me, a cab driver once. I was talking with him and talking about Christianity with him and, and, he, and knew he was a Muslim. And, and so he was saying, yeah, but Jesus said himself, there's none good but God. But the answer to that is yes, but because Christ himself is fully God. That's what Christ here is trying to get the rich young ruler to see. But notice here something else. What do you need for heaven? You have to have a right view of Jesus. You have to have a, a, an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You need to know the truth about Jesus. And you have to accept what the Bible says about Jesus, not just what you want Jesus to be. We, we are idolaters and by nature, and therefore the temptation for us is to always make God in our image. And that is true of God's son to make Jesus who we want Jesus to be rather than who the Bible. That's why you need to read the Bible. That's why you need to study the Bible. That's why you need to pray that the Holy Spirit give you a right understanding 
of his word. And that's also why you need to live a holy life, because if you're not living a holy life, it is not very likely that God is going to lead you in truth. This is why college students, you must abstain from sexual immorality. Don't think you're going to be shacking up with somebody in the dorm room on the weekend and expect to come into the Lord's house and have a right understanding of who Jesus is. The reason that so many college students go astray is because they're engaging in immorality. They're engaging in fornication and drunkenness. And so they come and they say, I'm not sure I believe anymore. And it's not because Jesus has changed. It's because they have changed. And so you must watch out for sin. Because sin will distort the way you view Jesus. Why do you call me good? So the church here needs to probe people when they want to speak about Christ or want to know about these things. We need to present rightly to them who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. This is the problem with liberalism. Liberalism never wants to present the biblical Christ to people. They want to use all the terminology. They want to call Jesus divine, but they don't mean by that fully God. The way that the Nicene Creed speaks of Jesus being God of God. They want to speak of resurrection, Christ being raised from the dead, but they don't mean bodily resurrection. They might use the they might employ the term son of God when speaking to Jesus, but they don't mean that Jesus has the same essence with the father and the spirit. They want to use it as some kind of political term, like Caesar would call himself son of God. They want to use all the terminology, but they want to strip it of its biblical meaning. And this is why the church must be discerning. So many people, they sit in the pews and they, they are satisfied hearing the biblical terminology, but they don't understand and they don't, they don't inquire what is the biblical meaning of the way that word is being used. And it can be very subtle. Ministers want to keep their job. <laughs> and so they purposefully deceive congregations. They say they think to themselves, I'll let them have their understanding of the way I'm using the word and I'll have my understanding of the way I'm using the word. And so when I speak of resurrection, I'll speak of resurrection to me in the sense that Christ has been raised in their hearts and minds. Not bodily from the dead. We're here. I once heard a minister say we are here to celebrate resurrection, he said. On Easter Sunday, we are here. You say, what's wrong with that? Uh Uh-huh. See, subtle. He didn't say we are here to celebrate the resurrection. He said, we're here to celebrate resurrection. Very subtle. Tremendous difference. You know, this story of the rich young ruler reminds us a lot of when Jesus got alone with his disciples. And you remember what Jesus asked them? He said, who do the people say that I am? Why do you call me good? Who do the people say that I am? Oh, some people say, you know, you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. But who do you say, Jesus said. And Peter, by the Spirit, said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. That was brought to you by the Spirit of God. And so those of you who do have a right understanding of Jesus, who truly know Jesus Christ this morning, you better thank the Lord you know Jesus Christ because it is only by the grace of God that you know Jesus Christ. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're clever. It's not because you were more righteous and therefore God picked you. Only by the grace of God, if you know Jesus truly and savingly here this morning, it is because grace and grace alone. Now, so Jesus says to the rich young ruler, why? Why do you call me good? Do you know who I am? Do you really know who I am? Is this some kind of flattery? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So that's the first response. What was Jesus' second response? Now, think about this. This is a guy who wants eternal life. <laughs> he, or at least he, he thinks he does. And, and, you know, I mean, if you're a minister and somebody off the street comes up to you and says, what must I do to have eternal life? You're like, whoa, Lord, wow, this is, this is great. You think you, this is going to be an easy sale. And yet Jesus seems to put every barrier in the way of the, making... This deal. And you know, a lot of us in the South need to be the same way, and I'll tell you why. It's because, as a, a Baptist minister here in Troop County once said to me many years ago, you've got to get them unsaved before you get them saved. This, this man thinks he's already saved. And the reason Jesus is putting these barriers in front of him is because he's trying to show this guy he still needs Christ. The rich young ruler does not think he needs Jesus. And we're going to see that here as we go. So he says, why do you call me good? Number one, you don't know who I am and you don't believe I am who I am. Number two, what does he say? He gives them the law. Now, this is where I think we really need to pay attention to the way Jesus does evangelism. Because the average minister here in Troop County is going to say, hey, you want eternal life? Just repeat after me this short little prayer I'm going to say, and you'll be saved. That's the way 90% of the ministers probably want to do evangelism here. Man, I am so glad you want eternal life. Why don't you repeat this prayer after me? Father, I'm a sinner, and and please forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. And then they'll, they'll say, now, if you have really believed that... You are saved. You have all this assurance. And they would send the rich young ruler on his way. The rich young ruler would pray that prayer after the minister. And the rich young ruler would go away thinking he's saved. And that's what's happening all over the, the South. Even though they don't come to church, even though, you know, they, they, they come, maybe show up at Christmas and Easter. Uh, they think they're a Christian. They think they're assured of salvation. I mean, they're going to be sorely surprised When Jesus says, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I signed the card. I went on the youth retreat and and I came forward when the youth minister said, everybody who wants to receive Jesus, come up to the front and I'll pray over you. And they're going to say, well, I did all that. And Jesus is going to say, I didn't know you. So what does Jesus do? He gives the law. 
Of all things, Jesus says, this guy is saying, what do I have to have to have eternal life? And he says, you know the law. Now, is Jesus saying here he believes in some kind of salvation through the works of the law? No. But he's setting this guy up. And this is where so many evangelicals fail. They fail to set the table to help the person see who Jesus is and why they need Jesus Christ. There is very little law work being done in the pulpit today in evangelicalism. What do I mean by law work? Preaching the law. Preaching verse 20 in your Bible. Most ministers would skip verse 20. If they had to do their own presentation to this rich young ruler, they would never mention the Ten Commandments. What do I need for eternal life? Hey, you know the Ten Commandments. You know the moral will of God. And what does he do? He begins to list the latter commandments. Do not commit adultery. It's interesting. He doesn't do them in order. I'm still kind of scratching my head a little bit about why Jesus does it that way. But he starts with the seventh commandment. I wonder if it's because statistically, the wealthier you are, the also that the, the, the uh, greater infidelity there tends to be in marriage. I don't know, but I've read sociological studies on that, that that with with wealth comes the temptation to adultery. And he begins with adultery, seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. So you have the seventh commandment, the sixth commandment, the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, and then he goes to the fifth commandment. Kind of interesting. I don't fully understand why Jesus jumps like that, but he does. And he gives the man the law. And we now I want you I just before we move on, I want you to sit there for a second and I want you to squirm. What do you need for heaven? You need the righteousness of the law. You need perfect obedience to the law of God. You need 100% perfect, absolute, impeccable obedience or you are going to hell. You need righteousness that is without spot or wrinkle, that is without stain. That's coming from Jesus. You know the law. This is the requirement for heaven. And if you don't meet this requirement, you're doomed. You're under the wrath and condemnation of God. I want you to think about that. That's the standard. That's the way Jesus presents the gospel, friends. Jesus never says, pray this prayer after me. We need a reformation in evangelicalism today, friends. The evangelical church doesn't even rightly know how to present the gospel the way Jesus does. 
We are supposed to come to the end of ourselves. When the word of God is preached rightly, we are supposed to say, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There is no hope for me. Other than Jesus Christ and his mercy and his grace. Too many evangelicals are not amazed by grace. And it's because the preachers give them no reason to be amazed by grace. The way they teach and the way they preach and the way they present the gospel gives your average evangelical no reason to shake his head and be amazed that God would have such mercy on him. You know the law, Jesus says. You want eternal life? Here's eternal life. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. You want eternal life? Get serious about that. Now, what does the rich young ruler say in response? This is where it's tragic. Verse 21. All these things I have kept from my youth up. Now we know why Jesus said what he said, don't we? Because this guy is more lost than a golf ball in the rough. He thinks. From the time he was a toddler on up. He's been perfectly obedient to the moral will of God. As a sinner, even though he's a child of Adam and Eve. Friends, I bet everyone in this room can think of a time when they were four years old, five years old, they lied. Or they stole. You took something. Put it in your pocket. It wasn't yours. It was on the end table. I bet everyone in this room can remember something from their youth like that. And this guy says, from my youth up, I've kept the law of God. This man is self-deceived. He is not being realistic and honest about who he is. Or he has a very, very, very low view of God's law. What the Pharisees would try to do is they lowered the standard of God's law. So that murder became only if I shot somebody or stabbed somebody. That was that was murder. But if I got angry with somebody, that's not murder, according to the Pharisee. So long as I stayed out of my neighbor's bed. I haven't committed adultery, but Jesus says, no, that's not the standard of God's law. The standard of God's law is if you so much as look at a woman so as to lust at her, you you are an adulterer. That's the, the law of God penetrates. To the very secret recesses of the human heart, to the places that only God can go. 
and it searches us out and it exposes our hypocrisy. It exposes our sinfulness. And so this rich young ruler, he's kidding himself. He thinks he's never, ever once violated the law of God. The Pharisees were kidding themselves if they thought they were righteous by the works of the law. The Bible makes it clear there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're a prostitute or whether you're a pastor's wife. Before the tribunal of God, you are in the same boat. None is righteous. So Jesus, what does he do? He realizes he's got a guy who doesn't understand his sin problem. And he doesn't understand who Jesus is. That, that, that is doubly difficult in evangelism. When they have a bad view of Jesus, an unorthodox view of Jesus, and they don't recognize themselves to be a sinner. What are you going to do? Well, look what Jesus says here. Verse 22. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He, he basically, what is he doing here? He's saying, let's see if you really want eternal life. Do you really, what is eternal life, boys and girls? Have you ever thought about that? What makes heaven heaven? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the pearly gates? Is it seeing relatives who have died? What makes heaven heaven? Let me give you the answer. It's the presence of God. It's Christ himself. That, that's what makes heaven heaven, is that you are there in the, in the presence of the Lord. That you are where Christ is. And so Jesus, what's he doing here? He's saying, okay, you want eternal life. You think you've kept the law of God. Let's, why, why don't you do this? You sell everything you have, give it away, and come and follow me. Be with me, because I am eternal life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Give up this world. Come and follow me. Where am I going? I'm going to Golgotha. I'm going to the cross. And you need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this man thinks he has obeyed the law of God. Let's see if he will even keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but me. Let's just see. Did you notice he never he never mentioned the 10th commandment as he went through the latter commandments? He didn't go to the 10th commandment, did he? You shall not covet. But he's testing really that, too, here, isn't he? Where is your heart? Is your heart with me? Do you love me? You remember when everybody was leaving Jesus in John, chapter six, Jesus was preaching Calvinism and everybody's leaving. Shocking, you know. You can't come to the Son unless you're drawn by the Holy Spirit. You know, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit brings him. And people are like, ah, I'm out of here. I'm going to the free will church, you know. 
And Jesus is left with his disciples, his 12. He said, are you going to go too? What does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to turn. And essentially, Jesus is asking the rich young ruler the same thing here. Are you willing to follow me all the way to the cross? Are you willing to go with me to Golgotha? Are you willing to give up this world? Are you willing to put this world behind your back? Now, I am not suggesting here that that this is something, you know, that you're what you need to do is you need to go home and liquidate all your assets here this Sunday afternoon. I'm not saying that's not the application here. But at the same time, we need to say wherever God has us providentially and whatever blessings God has given us to enjoy, because it doesn't just have to be material things. It could be that you have a lot of children. It could be that God has gifted you intellectually in a way. It doesn't have to be material gifts. It could be some other kind of blessing that God gives. But the point is here that we are willing to give it all over for Christ's sake. That we are willing to follow Christ first and foremost and that there is no blessing in this world that is worth keeping me from Jesus Christ. That Jesus is, is the great treasure. I'm willing to sell everything I have. You, you got this guy. He's walking through the field. He stumbles over something. He's like, what did I just trip over? He, he dusts the, the path that he just walked over. He realizes, oh, that looks like a box. He, he digs and, oh, my goodness, there's treasure in this. And he looks around. Nobody's looking. Okay, cover it back over and uh, sell my assets so I can get this piece of property. And, and I'll have great treasure. Jesus says that's what it's like when you come to Christ. When, when you truly sell, see yourself as a, a hopelessly lost sinner condemned under the law of God with no hope of heaven, not being trying to be a good neighbor, not trying to do a good few things to make up for your past, but truly seeing yourself as under the wrath and condemnation of God and your only hope is Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his substitutionary death on the cross. Suddenly now Jesus is that treasure and you gladly sell everything you have, even if you are Warren Buffett. And you, you see Jesus as so valuable, so precious, so dear, so lovely, so righteous, so good. There's nothing in this world that compares to Jesus Christ. No house, no car, no children, no grandchildren that compare to Jesus Christ. And I, and I gladly give all for Jesus. And, you know, if we do that, oftentimes God will give us these other things. Seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. But you have to have the heart for Christ. He's like the pearl of great price. To which the merchant, he's been in this business all his life. And he sees this one pearl. This is the deal of deals. And he sells and liquidates all his other commodities in order to get that pearl. What do you need for heaven? You need a right understanding of Jesus Christ. You need to see the law of God. It's condemning work in your life. And you need to see the preciousness of Jesus Christ. And you need that total commitment to Christ. The one thing that is lacking in the rich young ruler's life is a true, genuine faith and commitment to Jesus. And so Jesus says... Let me test you in that one area. Sell everything you have and see if you'll follow me. Now, 
I got to bring it to the third point, verses 24 to 27. The rich young ruler, Mark tells us that the rich young ruler walked away. And he walked away. Can you imagine? There's God incarnate and you walk away from God. You walked away. Jesus didn't walk away. This man walked away. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because wealthy people are view themselves as self-sufficient. They often view themselves as self-made. I'll have more to say about this tonight. When we talk about the, the subject of success in Proverbs. But it, again, as I said, it doesn't have to be wealth in terms of money. It can be wealth in any way that God has blessed you. How hard it is for people who have been blessed in this world to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, I think that's a literal camel. I think it's a literal little eye of the needle. I've heard liberals try to explain that way to show how it's possible for a camel to get through what was called the eye of the needle in the wall of the Jerusalem. But no, 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 no. I don't think that's what Jesus is. Jesus isn't trying to explain it away. He's saying it's impossible. Wealthy people cannot go to heaven. It's impossible. Let me put it another way. Americans cannot go to heaven. Apart from the grace of God. It's impossible. Humanly speaking. To enter the kingdom of God. And the crowd hears this and they're like, who can be saved? What does Jesus say? The things that are impossible with people. Are possible with God. The impossible work of grace. Salvation is a work of God. And a work of God alone to the glory of God. It is impossible. Flesh cannot save you. Blood inheritance cannot save you. The will of man cannot save you. Giftedness cannot save you. It is only the grace of God that can save a wealthy, self-satisfied, self-congratulatory, self-righteous, self-sufficient man. Only the grace of God in Jesus Christ can bring somebody like that to a position where they say, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Friends, have you ever come to that point in your life where you've pleaded with God to save you, to have mercy on you, the sinner? Have you ever pleaded with the Lord in prayer for grace to be delivered from the sins you've committed from the time you were a little person? Friends, do you view yourself as a righteous man like this rich young ruler, full of successes, full of the applause of men, well-respected in the community, 
full of the blessings of God, home, cars, children, bank accounts. What else do I need for eternal life? Don't walk away from Jesus Christ. He offers himself. You know, one of the things I love in Mark's version, we are told that he loved that man. Jesus loved him with a beneficent love. And he walked away. Are you going to walk away because you want to party? Young people, are you going to walk away because you don't want to bear the shame of Christ? Are you going to walk away because Jesus might ask you to do something? And you say, Lord, I don't want to. Or are you prepared really to say, Lord, my life is not my own? You created me, Lord. My life is yours. You died for me. Lord, I give you myself. Send me. Use me. Keep me. Let me not walk away, Jesus, from you. Amen. Father, we.